morning, friends. Let me save you the trouble of wondering about my eye. I have some sort of infection in my right eyelid. It'll go away soon, so if you're like this, that's what's going on, all right? Uh, I've not been with you for about three weeks. I've missed you. Three weeks ago, I was preaching at Foothill Church in Glendora, Southern California, and then doing a brief faith politics conference in the afternoon, and then my wife was with me for that. Good work going on there. We went down to Tijuana for some missionary training through something called Radius Radius International, which I'd love to tell you more about, the missionary education agency. Two weeks ago, uh, we were at her parents' church in Escondido. One week ago, I was preaching in the morning at Evergreen Baptist Church, also near Glendora, near Covina in Southern California. Mark Dever's preaching there this morning in a couple of hours. And in the evening, I preached at Bethany Baptist Church in Bellflower, California. Also had the chance to do a conference where we had about 140 different people show up, 70 churches represented, Southern California, L.A. area pastors uh, that previous week. Friends, there's a lot of good work going on in the L.A. area. That's why I'm telling you about this. I want you to be praying for healthy churches in the Los Angeles, Southern California area, churches that share our gospel, that preach expositionally, that practice meaningful membership and discipline, and are seeking to live as embassies of heaven. I go out and I do that on your behalf. I'm able to do that because of your ministry to me, because of your John and the elders preaching ministry to me, because members, all of your ministry to me gives me gospel life by which I'm able to go out and do that. And so I depend on your prayers. I ask for your prayers and that kind of ministry. In the same way, you do the same. You go into work every week. And it's the prayers of us, one another, that allows us to minister outside of these walls. So I hope to do the same with you, through you, for you. Concluded my time in Southern California at the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, You can read the news about that. If you want to know some of the headlines, happy for you to talk with me afterwards. Nine Marks, which I work for, had a great time both at our booth as well as at two evening events. A lot of people wonder about the Southern Baptist Convention in light of all the kinds of things that we see in the news. Let me just say this. The value of the Southern Baptist Convention is not what you see in the news headlines. The value of our participation in it has everything to do with sending missionaries, raising seminarians, planning churches. That, of course, is not the stuff that the press, the media, and so forth are interested in. They're interested in the more political things. And sometimes the convention gets involved, wisely, unwisely, in those kinds of other things. Nonetheless, the most important things are the things that are not in the headline, and that's what we try to pay the most attention to. Incidentally, friends, that's the Christian life. The most important stuff in the Christian life and in Christian ministry is the -the under-the-radar screen things. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed that a farmer plants in a field, and then he goes away and sleeps, and while he sleeps, the tree grows, though he knows not how. 
So we don't give too much attention to all the stuff that others want to talk about because we know that the real ministry is the quiet, often unseen ministry of God in word and spirit. In many ways, I think that prepares us for our text today. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. And in the coming weeks, we're going to slowly walk our way through almost all, not all, almost all of the rest of 1 John, his first epistle. Now, if you recall, in the last sermon on this, we we looked at verses 18 to 23, and the main action in verses 18 to 23 occurs in verse 19. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. And if you recall, I concluded that sermon by talking about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And I asked the question whether we must persevere to the end to be saved or whether God must preserve us to the end to be saved. The answer to that, of course, was yes, both, right? I also told you that the older I get, the more I realize that one of the main lessons in the Christian life is perseverance, learning how to endure amidst all of the seasons, the fast seasons, the slow seasons, the hard seasons, the easy seasons, that the life throws at us. Christianity, I said, is a marathon, not a sprint. Well, that brings us to today's sermon. So if verses 18 to 23 focus on who went out from us, our passage today focuses focuses on how do we not go out? How do we abide within when so many forces would pull us out? How do we endure in the Lord over the long haul? That's the title you'll see in the bulletin. How do we endure in the Lord over the long haul? And I've provided an outline. I think it's on pages 8 and 9 of your bulletin. And whether or not you're here this morning as a Christian, I trust you understand something of the challenge of endurance. John I believe, is training for a marathon. True? And yesterday you said you were going to run 13 miles, did you? Nine miles. Okay, Okay. so in his training, he's up to nine miles. He's got to get all the way to 26. Raise your hand if you've run a marathon. I, we, got, we got two people in here. Most of us haven't. I haven't. I've run three miles or four, and that's hard for me much less 26, right? What do you have to do to endure that long? Mile 10, mile 13, mile 20. You're at 20 miles and you've got six to go still. Your knees feel weak, your feet feel sore, your body is depleted. How do you endure? Or we could think about other areas of life. I remember my first semester of PhD work. Emma had just been born, so we had the newborn in the house. 
I was also working as an interim pastor, and I was preaching weekly through the book of Colossians. And I remember that first semester, I had these 20, 30-page papers on things like the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christology. And I remember I have a, I have a, a paper due, and I, I have a sermon I'm supposed to write, and I, I got a little kid screaming at 2 a.m., and I remember thinking, I don't know if I can keep doing this PhD. Well, why am I doing this anyway? This is, this is stupid. I think I'm going to quit. And I, I trust you guys have had different vocational seasons where you've wondered about enduring. Oh, or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a friendship that's really hard. Maybe it's a marriage that's really hard. This person is so difficult to live with. And I, I know it's me too. How will I endure? Like other areas of life, we are going to discover from our text that in some ways, persevering in Christianity, like persevering in a long road race, persevering in a tough season at work, persevering in a tough relationship, involves a couple of things. One, one looking back. Okay, why did, I, why did I start this? Why did I start this race? Why did I step into this faith? But it also involves looking forward. What, what's the finish line? What's the goal? In, in other words, persevering involves our work. We work to persevere. We'll, we'll think about that. But unlike in other areas of life, there is also something special about Christianity because it depends most dramatically upon not just our work, but the work of God. He must preserve us. You finally cannot get away if you belong to Him because He accomplishes exactly what He means to accomplish. He will preserve us. Our passage is 1 John. Look at chapter 2, verse 24, and we're going to read through chapter 3, verse 10. You're going to see the word abide a number of times. If you're using the ESV, the Greek word there is meno, which speaks to remaining in one place over a period of time. You can translate it abide or remain or endure, right? Verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide, remain, endure in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he's made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he had taught you, abide remain, endure in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. 
Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteousness, as he is righteous. Whoever practices, makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, as you see in your handout, again, I think pages eight or nine, we'll, see the, we'll seek to understand this passage and apply it to our individual lives and to our church with six questions, six questions and answers. Question one, how do we endure in the faith? Answer by rehearsing the gospel and practicing righteousness. Write, write that down. By rehearsing the gospel and practicing righteousness. We, we see this in several verses. Look at verse 24 again. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide, remain endure, in the Son and in the Father. What is it that they heard from the beginning? Well, it's, it's the message that Jesus, come in the flesh, as the Son of God, provides for the forgiveness of sins. If you're visiting this morning and you do not understand yourself to be a Christian with us, this message is the very heart of the Christian faith, that you and I have sinned, earning God's wrath, that the Son of God, Jesus, fully God, fully man, came as the Messiah to live the life that we should live, died the death on the cross that we should die, and paid the penalty in our place, paid the penalty for all those who would repent and believe, and then he rose again, revealing that he had conquered both sin and death. And if you are a Christian here this morning, it's that message which you must hold on to, which you must rehearse, if you would abide, remain, endure in the Son and in the Father. We must, as a church, rehearse this gospel continually. Every time we get together, saints, it needs to be around this message and reminders of this message. When we, when we sing, we sing this message. When we pray, we should be praying according to this message, rehearsing this message. As families, as you teach your children and as you encourage one another as spouses, you do so around this message. It should be often on our lips and in our hearts and in our minds. Every day you wake up, Christian, you're rehearsing. You're living by, you're abiding in this message, this good news of 
the gospel. Friends, if you leave this church and you go to some other church, make sure it's a message that they're rehearsing weekly. How encouraged I was to be in several different churches of Southern California who share this message with us and rehearse it every week. After all, what happens when we stop rehearsing it? We begin to take it for granted. And what happens when we take it for granted? We begin to forget it. And what happens when we forget it? We begin to build our life on other things. We begin to pursue righteousness building on other things. And that's precisely when moralism, Phariseeism, begins to creep in. And how easily, how tempting moralism, Phariseeism, look at me, I'm righteous, is even for Christians. Rehearsing the gospel doesn't mean I say to my wife or my kids, hey, it's all by grace, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about the law. That, that's not what it means. What it means is, as I, as I live as a husband, as I live as a father, as I, as I, I live as a church member, as, as I go into the public square, it means I remember I'm here by grace because I'm a sinner too. And I'm holding on to that grace to pursue righteousness. And that's what keeps moralism away. Friends, I confess I failed at this last night. A daughter was struggling with fear. I responded severely. I forgot that I'm a sinner in need of grace, calling to dispense that same grace by which I live. On a related note, Mark, Mark Dever texted me this morning. He said, on this Father's Day, praying that you will not be domineering to those in your charge, but will set them a good example. How can I not be domineering? By rehearsing the gospel. By living by grace. That's true whether you're a father or a mother friend, a fellow church member, a boss, a worker. But we must not also just, but we not just remember the message, rehearse the message. We also, this passage, these passages tell us, practice righteousness. Look at 2.29 again. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Or look at chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, we all have different struggles, different temptations, different weaknesses. How, how friend, are you doing in yours? I don't know what your particular temptations or struggles are. You do. Think, think through them. How are you doing in them? Are you fighting against them? How, how would you say you're doing in practicing righteousness and pursuing righteousness in those areas? I'm so encouraged in my small group how the different guys in the small group will regularly share some of the things that they're struggling with and they'll ask for prayer, ask for help in battling against those particular temptations. But by God's grace, that's characteristic 
of the brothers I, I, I enjoy spending time with in our small group. Practicing righteousness means studying the Bible, seeing what it says, understanding where it applies to my life and our church's life, and then enlisting one another in that fight, in that pursuit. We're not meant to fight alone. We help one another. It means we, we discover the small cracks in the cement before they turn into, and we attend to them before they turn into big cracks. It means we take sin seriously, and we use one another to take and fight against sin. How do we endure in the faith? By rehearsing the gospel, by practicing righteousness. Now, let me be clear. One qualification on this point. Doing so doesn't earn us God's favor. We don't, okay, I've been saved, but if I want to be finally saved, I have to do these things so that God favors me. That's not how it works. Rather, it's what people who possess God's favor, who possess God's grace, do. Thinking about it this way. There's a difference between purchasing a Costco card, which makes you a member, and showing up and showing the Costco card, right? I'm, I'm a member. I'm, I'm coming in now. Well, Christ's work of justification and the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration gives us that card. It makes us members. And then we show up with the card by rehearsing the gospel, by practicing righteousness. It's those who are members that do these things. So how do we endure by rehearsing the gospel, by practicing righteousness? It's what, it's what members do and how they endure. Question two, that was the how. Question two, what's the why? Why do we endure? Why should we endure? Answer, write this down, for the sake of eternity with Christ. For the sake of eternity with Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 25. And this is the promise He has made us, eternal life. We're promised eternal life for enduring. But not only that, we're promised eternal life with Him and seeing Him. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What happens to children? Well, they grow up. They become adults. And that adult version of you has in some ways the same face and the same personality, but of course it's not exactly the same face and personality. You, you grow up. At least some of us do. But look at verse 2 again. We are children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What does that mean? It means the most mature Christian person in this room, whoever that is, is still a child. We're all children. And one day, we all will be adults, spiritually speaking. Jesus 
will appear, says the verse. And when he appears and we behold him, we will become like him. We will see him as he is, beautiful, glorious, better than anything this world has to offer. And, and, and behold him, beholding him, we, we will think, I don't want anything else. I want him. I will imitate him. When that day comes, when we finally see with eyes of sight and not just eyes of faith, beholding his beauty, his power, his glory. My wife's grandmother, Phyllis, passed away just a few weeks ago. She was 92 and, praise God, loved Jesus. And she is survived by her husband, Harry, age 94. And Harry is one of the more lovely Christian men you will ever meet. And shortly before her death, he whispered into her ear, I'll see you soon. Why would Harry and Phyllis endure in the Christian faith for 60, 70, 80 years? Because they had a confidence of what was coming. I'll see you soon. And standing there on the edge of eternity, which we all do, they knew they would imminently behold Jesus. And that beholding Jesus would stretch on for eternity and be better, more valuable than anything this world offers. And they would become like Jesus. Gentle like Jesus. Tender, compassionate like Jesus. Courageous, bold like Jesus. Wise, loving, righteous like Jesus. See you soon. We'll get there. It's coming. Yet not only does this hope help us to endure, it purifies us. I emailed a number of the teens on Friday, asked them what they saw in this passage to help me reflect on it. And this is something that struck Adam Rousseau. He said in an email, hope is purifying. Exactly right. Why is hope purifying? Well, some of you might be able to think back to your engagement. You remember when you were engaged and maybe you were eating a little healthier, maybe you were doing a little bit more exercise in those days leading up to your marriage. Uh, maybe you were a little more focused on what kind of spouse you want to be. That, that hope, that anticipation worked to purify your life and what you were aiming at. Friends, don't you realize that beholding Christ is the ultimate goal of your Christianity? Why are you a Christian? If it's not for beholding Christ, I'm not sure it's Christianity. Did you realize that that's what your Christianity is all about? That it's at the heart and center of it, beholding Christ? Or is it something else? Is there something else that you think might be better? 
than beholding Christ. Yet if you realize that beholding Him truly is best, better than everything, won't you be able to endure anything? How do we endure? By remembering the gospel and practicing righteousness. Why do we endure? For the sake of eternity with Christ. Question three. What keeps us from enduring? Answer, deceit and shame. Deceit and shame. Look at verses 26 to 28 again. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The second half of verse 27. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as has been taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You will not endure if you have been and let yourself be deceived. Deceived by false teachers who deny that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh, who deny the forgiveness of sins, who deny that we must repent and walk in righteousness. John's readers had seen people going out of the faith claiming that the gospel or some aspect of the gospel is not true, and so they left the faith, even if they continued to call themselves Christians. And so the Christians that remained needed this assurance that it is true and no lie. Uh, Lois Brogy also responded to one of my, to my emails. She wrote this, those who tell us to sin and that sin is good are deceiving us. Exactly right. But notice also how our beliefs about what is true are connected to our fear or our sense of shame towards other people. Look at verse 28 again. You will not endure if you shrink back in shame when he comes. I don't want to be associated with that Jesus guy or his people. Or, or maybe you shrink back because when he comes, you recognize you don't know him. You've been living as his enemy and he is now coming as judge, which makes him your enemy. You've loved the world too much. And so you shrink back in fear. Deceit and shame or fear keep us from enduring. Uh, so many of the worldviews and perspectives and moral certainties being preached by our culture right now in which Christians too easily adopt are rooted in such deceit, deception, and fear or shame. Three examples. Example one, LGBT. A daughter and I were recently watching a basketball game and she mentioned her frustration with well-known Christian athletes becoming LGBT affirming. Now, in their defense, I, I, I said, I can only imagine how hard it must be to receive all the challenges they receive and not be tempted to go along, get along. Let's be clear, friends. Pride Month 
with all of its rainbow corporate logos and all the drapery, decor drapery that we see in places like Starbucks is not finally about affirming the dignity of people. If you want something that affirms the dignity of people, look to the faith that says all people were created in God's image. That's how you affirm the dignity of people. Pride Month, on the other hand, is all about deception and fear. It sponsors the whole thing. Fear of not being politically correct. Fear of being counted as a moral pariah or outcast. Fear of not getting to worship the idols of sex and self-created identity. And at some level, I think most people know it. I happen to be in Christian spaces. You may not be, but I'm frequently in Christian spaces where these messages are drawing Christians in. And so I must warn you of it. Example number two, race. Today is Juneteenth, which celebrates the emancipation of slaves on June 19th, 1865. And I think it's worth reflecting for a moment Praising God, first of all, for that emancipation, but second of all, reflecting for a moment on how easily so many Christians were subverted by a a version of Christianity in which white people were somehow superior. I've read the sermons. I've read the theologies and the histories. If you haven't, you should. Many Christians concocted a version of Christianity in which this was justified, this was normal. And the stain of that does not easily get washed away. How easily our Christianity can begin to accommodate the idea that I'm better than those people. I know more, understand more. And make no mistake, this isn't, this isn't a temptation for just to those of us in, with white skin. This is universal, friends. And it's a temptation to all of us. Nonetheless, with our own particular American history and the preponderance of sin that we see there, this is an opportunity to, 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 to realize how easily our, our Christianity can be deceived. Be aware of that. Resist that. Pent of that. Example number three, prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel, whether of the hard health and wealth variety or of the softer best life now variety or of the softest, most subtle, mm, I want my life to look like my colleagues or my neighbors. I, I just kind of expect that. And something must be wrong if it doesn't. Variety. All root in fear and deception. Deception that if something is difficult in life, then God must be unfaithful or unloving. The fear that I've got to get all that I want in this world because this world matters most. What keeps Christians from enduring deceit and fear, shame? And it's worth reflecting each of us, for a moment, uh, in a quiet moment like this, stop and ask yourself, do I want my faith to be governed by deception and fear? Trust the answer is no. 
It's until we stop and actually reflect on that, that we discover, oh, maybe, maybe I'm doing that more than I realize. How do, how do you know if you're being governed by deception and by, or by fear and shame? Well, well, number one, you begin to adopt the world's perspectives and moralities over and against Scripture. Number two, you begin to justify your own desires for sin. Number three, you begin to despise your fellow Christians and avoid or just neglect gathering with the church. Short, your Christianity, if you continue to call yourself one, begins to look like the world. What keeps us from enduring deception, shame, or fear. Question four, who enables us to endure? Answer, God's Spirit. Write that down. Who enables us to endure? God's Spirit. Look again at verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught, you abide in Him. Uh, with these first three questions, we were focused on what we do and how Christianity, in some respects, looks like enduring in other places of life. In this point, we begin to notice that this is all dependent on what God does. It depends on the work of His Spirit and the anointing of His Spirit. The anointing of His Spirit is what Christians call regeneration. Just think of that word, gener you're, you're generated born, but now we're regenerated, reborn. And this refers to the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us that gives us the ability, that turns on the lights and gives us the ability to understand and apprehend and, and weigh the significance and pursue the good news of Christ's gospel. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. You have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. You have knowledge because you have been anointed. And the ability to know and love God depends on, finally, God's Spirit, because the Spirit gives us these new hearts and these new natures. He regenerates us. What do I mean by a new nature? Your nature determines how you will act. The dogs bark, right? Penguins waddle. A good tree bears good fruit, says Jesus. A bad tree bears bad fruit. All things act according to their natures. People act according to their natures, just as animals do, just as God himself does. To reflect for a moment, people often ask about free will. Do we have free will? Well, if by that you mean, do we have the freedom to act contrary to our natures? No, you do not. You have the freedom to act contrary to your nature no more than a leopard, leopard can stop growing spots or stop desiring meat. It's, it's according to its nature that a leopard does those things. And so we all do. And here's where there's a challenge for us as fallen human beings. What if by nature we want to be God and despise God's righteousness? Can we suddenly decide, oh, I love God and I love His righteousness? Well, we can if we're given a new nature, if we are anointed by the Spirit, if we are re 
generated. Think of Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Okay, that's, that's one kind of nature. Flesh giving birth to flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Okay, that's another nature. Born of the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. We, we, we need new natures. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Think back to my Costco illustration. Jesus, through his word and spirit, purchases that membership for us, I said, but then we, we show the card by rehearsing the gospel and practicing righteousness. We demonstrate what we are, Right? Look at chapter 3, verse 7 again. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Practicing righteousness is the demonstration of the new nature of being righteous. Lois Brogy, in her email to me, understood this point. She said, the fruit in our life, we're holding up the card, the fruit in our life shows us who we ultimately belong to, who purchased us, who purchased that card, who gave us this new nature. Okay, all of this is background for understanding what's going on in verse 27 and this talk of an anointing and a, and a teacher. Look, verse 27 again, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. That doesn't mean that you don't need Bible teachers or, or pastors to grow in your understanding of the Bible. That's, that's not what he's getting at here. Rather, it means if you've been given the new nature through the Holy Spirit of God, it's like you have new DNA. You know how DNA is comprised of four different chemicals that are abbreviated as G, C, A, and T? They come in different combinations. It's just like we have new DNA, but instead of those, those chemicals, we have gospel. Gospel natures. And, and you don't need anyone to teach you that. Because the Holy Spirit, once you have it, because the Holy Spirit of God has, has made that your new DNA. That, that's what he is saying here. Once the Holy Spirit is emblazoned on your heart through anointing, written on your heart, gospel, that can't be wiped away with a wet rag. So question four, who enables us to endure? Well, God himself in the person of his Spirit and and notice how this is different than any other kind of endurance in life. We're, we're guaranteed that God will do it, even as we're called to do it. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, you're commanded, says Paul, right? For it is God who wills in you to work according to his purposes. Question five, who endures? Answer, the children of God. Write that down. Who endures? The children of God. Look at the verse, verses of chapter 3 again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be 
like him because we shall see him as he is. Again, going back to the Spirit, giving us this new nature. That's what it means to be children of God. It means that we have been born again. Again, think of John chapter 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, unable to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus replied, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus says, well, aren't you Israel's teacher? Don't you understand this? That which is born of the flesh, he says, is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Come on, Nicodemus. Back to our passage. John writes in 3 verse 1, the reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. They've only been born of the flesh. They've not been born of the spirit. We're talking about two completely non-overlapping spiritual universes here. And unless one is born again from this universe to regenerated this universe, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can hold it up in front of the face and they can't see it. Some of you have read Harry Potter and you've read about the creatures called Thestrals, which you can only see with your eyes if you know somebody who has died. And so at one point in the story, Harry wonders if he's going mad because he's looking and he's beholding this beautiful train of animals and the people all around him can't see it. He's like, am, am I crazy? I'm looking right at it. They can't see it. Okay, so again, realize what's happening in this passage. Some people have left the church. Others are left remaining. And God says, you're, John says, you're left remaining because you're a child of God. You, you, you can see the thestrals. They, they can't see it. You've been born again. So you're looking and you're beholding this glorious train of animals. And the ones who went out from us can't see it. If you're a child, you can't unmake yourself as a child. I am the child of Dave and Barb Lehman. Now, no matter what I think of Dave and Barb, I can't unmake myself a child of them. And friend, if you're a child of God, you cannot unmake yourself a child of God. And this is what John means to encourage us. So work out your salvation. Rehearse the gospel. Keep practicing righteousness, but you can't unmake yourself that. And if you're his, you're going to keep doing that. That's how you show it. There's the card. That's how you prove it. That you're that, a child of God. Number six, who doesn't endure? Answer, children of the devil what the text says. Look at verses 8 to 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Those who leave the church or those who remain in the church but don't practice righteousness, practice sinning, or who do not love their 
fellow Christians prove that they are of the devil. And mind you, the whole Bible divides history into these two categories. Go all the way back to Genesis, and what do you get? The seed of the serpent, which we go through Cain, the seed of the woman, which we go through Seth. And we're all one or the other, child of children of God or children of the devil. And let's just be honest for a moment. It's hard to think of language or categorizations more offensive to our inclusivistic love is love age, isn't it? Either you're a child of God or of the devil. I mean, isn't that how cult leaders speak? Isn't that crazy? I remember when I was in high school watching Saturday Night Live skits, and we had the church lady who ascribed everything to the devil. It's, it's the sort of language that makes you stop and think, okay, am I, am I really all in on this book? Because it couldn't be more explicit in this book. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. You believe that? If you have been anointed by the Spirit, and if your life is characterized by rehearsing the gospel and practicing righteousness, if you have been born again by God, you're all in on this book. You see that, and you recognize not that I'm great, not that I'm righteous. I'm Look at me, I'm a child of God. Ra- ra- rather, you look at that and you think, my native language is sin. My, my, my mother's tongue that I adopted and imbibed from a young age was deceit. I, I too, by birth, was a child of the devil. And it was only by God's grace causing me to be, as Jesus said, born again. Or as John says, anointed of the Spirit. That I'm learning this new language of truth and love and righteousness. So I'm quite certain there are only two categories and all history is divided into two categories precisely because I know what I was. And I know what, by God's grace, I am and becoming. Let's conclude by going back to where we began. One of the grand lessons of the Christian life, I said, is endurance. And the Apostle John's goal in teaching about endurance, my goal, brothers and sisters, in preaching about it right now is to, and if you've been tuned out, here we are at the conclusion, tune back in, My goal is to prepare you for what's ahead. The Christian life, when you become a Christian, is not a write-off into the sunset, is not a happily ever after sort of life. Rather, the Christian life means enduring in trial after trial after trial. One shape, one size, another variety, little by little. The Lord allows these continue to come to the end. Okay, at mile six of the marathon, it's going to feel like this. At mile 15, it's going to feel like that. At mile 20, you're going to want to drop dead, but you still have six more to go. 
And so my task here this morning, our task in one another's lives is to remind each other of that and prepare one another for that and to be like trainers and helpers handing out little cups of water and sponges filled with water along the way and not letting ourselves forget. No, this is an easy believism we're about here. We're about the long haul. And something, friends, I've observed watching older saints get old and die, it doesn't get easier. You know, you kind of hope, oh, I work hard a lot of years, I save up, I retirement, I go and play golf, and it's not like that. It tends to be trial after trial. But why? Why would God set it up this way? I think this passage impels that question. Lord Jesus, why, why would you set it up this way? Why, why does endurance have to be the grand lesson? Why not just learn the gospel and then be whisked away to glory? That would seem pretty cool, a lot easier. Why isn't it like that? Why this day after day, man, this is hard. Man, I want to quit. Why just set it up like that, Lord Jesus? Suppose you become a Christian age 20. Why the trials of singleness? Why the trials of finding a job and making enough money? Why, 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 why the, you're married. Why, why the trouble of having children? Or, or if you have children, why the troubles of living with children and raising them? And, and then maybe seeing them abandon the faith when they're older or doing something else. Why, why all the challenges of temptations all around us, pulling some away so that some go out? Lord Jesus, why don't you keep all of us here? Why, why do you let all these pressures and temptations take some out so that they abandon the faith? Why, why am I still struggling with the sins that I struggled with when I was 20? Why, why haven't I gotten over those? Why am I still limping in this way? Why is it so hard to endure? Why won't this trial get better? I'm so tired of it, exhausted. Answer, well, there's a number of answers. One answer that we see in this text is God means to purify us. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You and I, friend, are being Purified. God is very deliberate purposes for the waiting. It's not like waiting for a delayed flight, which, which is kind of a waste of time. Rather, little by little, day by day, what is God doing? He's exposing the lies one at a time. It's been interesting for me to watch teenage girls, still young in one respect, in another respect, realizing, ah, that's a lie. And what they'll discover, and what you, many of you know, is that at age 21 and age 32 and age 45, still more lies will be exposed. And, and the Lord is saying, let me expose this one. Let me expose that one. Let me expose that one. He's undoing the fears, little by little. I was afraid of this. I'm not anymore. I was afraid of that. I'm not anymore. I was afraid of these things. I'm not anymore. And little by little, he's showing us that nothing compares to him. I, I, I would have 
I would have forfeited my soul to gain the world. Well, maybe not. Maybe my soul is more precious holding on to him. Again and again, day by day, one trial to the next, he's showing us that the rewards and treasures and the approvals of this world are disappointing. More and more, we all begin to think nothing can begin to compare with the day in which I behold him face to face and see him as he is my creator, my redeemer, the one who upholds the universe with the word of his power, my friend, my very purpose for existing. And friends, I think he's teaching us to wait so that our capacity to desire him grows larger and deeper and purer so that our eternal joy will be larger and deeper and purer. More enduring now means eternal joy later, forever, for eternity. Isn't that what this passage promises us? Eternal life. When we've been there for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's grace than when we first begun. What's eternity? The light, weightless trials we endure now compared to that? Praise God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't like waiting. We don't like enduring, but we know you have good for us in the waiting, in the enduring. Help us not to be deceived. Help us not to be put to shame. Help us to rehearse the gospel and to practice righteousness as your children as we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.